Section 13 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 36, The Counter-Revolution and October Massacre, Part 2. 3. The Undaunted Struggle for Equal Rights The terrible October calamities were faced by Russian Jewry in a spirit of courage and fortitude. It stood alone in its sorrow. The progressive elements of Russian society, which were themselves in the throes of a great crisis, reacted feebly upon the sufferings of the Jewish people, which had become the scapegoat of the counter-revolution. The indifference of the outside world, however, was counteracted by the rise of the Jewish national sentiment among the better classes of Russian Jewry. One month after the pogrom Bakchonalia, the League for the Attainment of Equal Rights for the Jewish People held its second convention in St. Petersburg. The convention, which lasted four days, November 22nd to 25th, gave public utterance to the feeling of profound national indignation. It voted down the motion to send a deputation to Count Fitte, asking for the immediate grant of equal rights to the Jews. In the resolution repudiating this step, the policy of the government was characterized in these words. The facts have incontrovertibly proved that the recent pogroms, appalling by their dimensions and by the number of their victims, have been staged with the open connivance and, in many cases, with the immediate assistance and sometimes even under the direction of the police and highest local administration. That the government, not at all abashed by the monstrous crimes of its executive organs, the local representative of state authority, has not removed from office a single one of the suspected functionaries and has taken no measures to bring them to justice. In view of the fact that Count Fitte has repeatedly stated that the government does not see its way clear to proclaim at the present moment the emancipation of the Jews, supposedly in the interest of the Jews themselves, against whom the agitation of the popular masses might be intensified by such a measure, whereas in reality the pogroms are a result of that very rightlessness of the Jews, which is fully realized by the masses of the Russian people and by the so-called Black Hundred. The convention resolves that the sending of a deputation to Count Vite and the entering into negotiations with him will achieve no purpose and that, instead, all efforts should be concentrated upon organizing Russian Jewry in the struggle for its equality of citizenship by joining the ranks of the general movement for liberty. Imbued with the spirit of martyrdom, the convention remembered the martyr Dashevsky, the avenger of the Kishinev massacre, and passed the resolution to convey to the youthful sufferer who was then languishing in a penal military company in its enthusiastic greetings. In an outburst of national enthusiasm, the convention adopted the following bold resolution. In the interest of realizing to their full extent 
the civil, political, and national rights of the Jewish nationality in Russia, the Convention resolves as follows. To proceed without delay to call, on the basis of universal and equal suffrage, without discrimination of sex, and by a direct secret vote, on all Russian Jewish National Assembly in order to establish, in accordance with the will of the entire Jewish population, the forms and principles of its national self-determination, as well as the foundations of its internal organization. It was the project of a national synergion, radically different in its conception from the Napoleonic synergion convened in 1807. The third convention of the League of Equal Rights was held on February 10th to 13, 1906, during the election campaign to the first Imperial Duma. The proposal of the left wing of the League to boycott the Duma on the ground that it will prove a bulwark of reaction, a prediction which was fully justified by events, and to refrain from taking part in the elections was voted down. On the contrary, a resolution was passed calling upon the Jews to take a most active part in the elections, to nominate everywhere their own Jewish candidates, and wherever this was impossible, to give their votes to the non-Jewish candidates on condition that they pledged themselves to support in the Duma the civil, political, and national rights of the Jewish people. The resolution, moreover, contained this clause to insist that the Jewish question in the Duma shall be settled unconditionally in connection with the fundamental articles of the Constitution and with the questions of elementary liberties to be granted to all citizens. An election campaign was set in motion and carried on under the most difficult circumstances. The police authorities took advantage of the state of war, which had been proclaimed in many places to interfere with the comprehensive pre-election propaganda, and at the same time, the Black Hundred tried to intimidate the Jews by holding out the menace of pogroms during the approaching Passover season. In Poland, the anti-Semitic chauvinists threatened the Jews with all possible reprisals for their audacious intentions to nominate their own candidates for the Duma alongside of the candidates of the Christian Poles. Simultaneously, the Jewish group of the left, the Bund and others, followed the policy of boycotting the Duma and did their best to interfere with the elections. However, all these apprehensions proved groundless. The Passover and election programs did not take place, and Russian Jewry displayed a vigorous activity in the elections, with the result that 12 Jewish deputies were sent to the first Duma. The most active among these deputies were M. Binava, one of the leaders of the General Russian Constitutional Democratic Party and the president of the League for the Attainment of Equal Rights. Dr. Shmariao Levin, the well-known Zionist, L. Bramson, actively identified with Jewish educational activities, who was affiliated with the Russian democratic group known as the Trudoviki, or Labourites. All the Jewish deputies were united on the nationalistic platform formulated by the League for the Attainment of Equal Rights. By a resolution passed at the Fourth Convention of the League, 
held on May 9th to 13th, 1906, they pledged themselves to coordinate their actions in all questions pertaining to Jewish emancipation and to abide by a common discipline without, however, forming a separate parliamentary fraction. 4. The Jewish Question Before the First Duma The First Duma was convened on April 27, 1906, and barely three months later, on July 8, it was dissolved, or rather dispersed by the Tsar, for having displayed a spirit of excessive opposition. The prevailing element in the First Duma was the constitutional democratic majority, to which, by their political sympathies, the bulk of Russian Jewry and 10 of its 12 representatives in the Duma, the other two stood a little more to the left, belonged. It was natural for the Jews to expect that a parliament of this complexion would have no difficulty in solving the question of equal rights for the Jews as one of the most fundamental prerequisites of civil liberty. Unfortunately, this expectation was not justified. The entire brief session of the Duma was spent in an uninterrupted struggle of the opposition with the unscrupulous government which was then headed by Kuremikin, a hidebind reactionary. True, in its reply to the speech from the throne, the Duma declared that neither liberty nor order can be firmly established without the equality of all citizens before the law. But in the pronouncement of the government of May 13, no word was said about this equality of citizenship. The Jewish deputy Vinava delivered a powerful speech in which, among other things, he spoke as follows. From this platform, from which so much has been said about political liberties, we Jews, the representatives of one of the most tortured nationalities in the land, have not uttered a single word about ourselves because we did not consider it seemly to speak here of civil inequality. Now, however, it is becoming clear to us that the government has made up its mind to continue on the same road on which it has gone until now, and we are therefore bound to declare that so long as you will connive at civil slavery, there will be no peace in the land. The mistake made by the Jewish deputies consisted just in the fact that they had not uttered a single word about themselves on a former occasion in reply to the speech from the throne, which had equally failed to make the slightest mention of civil equality, practically affecting only the Jews, and that they did not utter that word with that feeling of righteous indignation to which the representatives of the most tortured nationality in Russia were morally entitled. Later on, the debates in the Duma concerning the Jewish question were, by the force of events, concentrated upon the program policy of the government. On May 8, an interpellation was introduced regarding the complicity of the Imperial Police Department in instigating the pogroms of 1905. Stolypin, the Minister of the Interior, promised to reply to the interpellation, which was substantiated by documentary evidence a month later. But before that term had elapsed, a new sanguinary pogrom broke out in Bialystok. 
in this center of the Jewish revolutionary and labor movement, where, in 1905, the police and troops had already twice staged a Jewish massacre, a new conspiracy was being hatched by the police and military against the orders of the liberty movement. An accidental act of terrorism, the assassination of the chief of police by an unknown culprit, gave the police conspirators a proper occasion to execute their terrible design. On June 1st, during a church procession, a pistol was discharged by an agent provocateur from among the Black Hundred, and at once a rumor spread like wildfire among the crowd that the Jewish anarchists are firing at the Christians. The pogrom flared up on the spot. In the course of two days, the mob was busy demolishing Jewish houses and stores and attacking the Jews, while at the same time, the police and military were systematically firing at the Jews, not only on the streets, but also in the houses in which the unfortunate tried to hide. The bestialities of Kishinev were enacted again. Entire families were slaughtered. Human beings were tortured and hacked to pieces. Limbs were cut off from the bodies, nails driven into the heads. Eighty dead and hundreds of wounded Jews were the result of this new exploit of counter-revolutionaries. On June 2nd, the Imperial Duma received the heart-rending news of the Bialystok massacre, and right there, after the passionate speeches of Dr. Levin, Rodichev, and other deputies, passed the resolution to bring in an interpellation to be answered by the government within a fixed date, and to appoint a parliamentary commission which was to investigate the events on the spot. Three Duma deputies left at once for Bialystok, and on their return submitted to the Duma an unvanished account, which incontrovertibly established the fact that the Bialystok crime had been carefully prepared as a counter-revolutionary act, and that the peaceful Jewish population had been pitilessly shut down by the police and soldiery. On June 5th, three days after the appearance of the bloody specter of Bialystok in the Duma Hall, a bill dealing with civil equality for the Jews came up for discussion. The burning problem involving the disfranchisement of six million human beings was discussed side by side with the question of a few petty class discriminations and with the entire separate question of women's rights. The entire treatment of the subject by the deputies showed a distinct lack of warm-hearted sympathy. Only the speech of the Jewish deputy Levin reverberated with indignation when he reminded the Russian assembly that he himself, being a Jew, would in ordinary times be denied the right of residence in the capital, and that as soon as the Duma would be dissolved, he, a representative of the people, and the former legislator would be evicted from St. Petersburg by the police. The bill was referred to a committee to receive its final shape. After an interval of three days on June 8th, the Duma had again occasion to discuss the subject of pogroms. Premier Stolypin replied to the interpellation of May 8th concerning the complicity of the government in the pogroms of 1905. His lame attempt to exonerate the authorities called forth a strong rebuttal from a former member of the government, D. 
the erstwhile assistant minister of the interior, Deputy Uzrov, who bravely disclosed the full truth. Fortified by documentary evidence, he proved the existence of a secret printing press in the police department, which was issuing patriotic proclamations calling upon the populace to exterminate the Jews. He quoted the words of the gendarmery officer who was in charge of that particular activity. A pogrom may be arranged on whatever scale you please, whether it be against 10 people or against 10,000. And he concluded his speech with these words. The danger will not disappear so long as the affairs of the state and the destinies of the land will be subject to the influence of people who, by their training, are corporals and policemen, and by their convictions, program makers. These words were accompanied by a storm of applause, and the government bench was showered with cries. Resign, you program fiends. The Duma finally adopted a resolution echoing these cries of indignation. A more passionate tone characterized the discussions of the Duma during the days of June 23rd to 26th in connection with the report of the Parliamentary Commission, which had been appointed to investigate the Bialystok massacre. The Duma was scandalized by the lying official communication in which the Jews were put forward as the authors of the pogrom and by the shameful military order of the day in which the troops of the Bialystok garrison were thanked for their splendid services during the time of the pogrom. The speeches delivered by the Jewish deputies by Jakobson, who had visited Bialystok as one of the members of the Parliamentary Commission, and by Vinava and Levin, gave vent to their burning national wrath. The Russian Mirawo, Bodyshev, pilloried the highly placed instigators of the Bialystok butchery. On July 7th, the Duma concluded the debate by adopting a resolution denouncing in violent terms the policy of the government, a policy of oppression, pridefulness, and extermination, which had created a situation unprecedented in the history of civilized countries and demanding, moreover, the immediate resignation of the reactionary ministry. 5. The spread of anarchy and the second Duma. Two days later, when the deputies appeared before the Duma, they found the building closed, and on the doors was displayed an imperial manifesto dissolving the Duma, which has encroached upon a domain outside its jurisdiction and has engaged in investigating the acts of the authorities appointed by us. The sudden dissolution of the Duma was answered by the Vigo Manifesto, which was signed by the entire parliamentary opposition, calling upon the people to refuse to pay taxes to Finnish soldiers to a government which had driven asunder their representatives. The manifesto was also signed by all the Jewish deputies who subsequently had to pay for it with imprisonment and the loss of their electoral rights. The revolutionary terrorism, which had subsided during the sessions of the Duma, broke out with redoubled violence after its dissolution. Attempts upon the lives of high officials, the most terrible being the explosion of a bomb in the summer residence of Stolypin, 
who had been appointed prime minister at the dissolution of the Duma. Expropriations, i.e., the plunder of state funds and private money for the revolutionary purposes, anarchistic labor strikes were the order of the day. The government retorted with monstrous measures of oppression. A political court martial was instituted, which, in the course of five months, September 1906 to January 1907, sentenced over 1,000 people to death, among them many who were innocent or underages. Needless to say, a considerable portion of these victims were Jews. Yet, as far as the revolutionary attitude of the Jewish population was concerned, the government was not satisfied to cope with it by legal executions and therefore resorted, in addition, to the well-tried contrivance of wholesale executions, in other words, of pogroms. The chief of the political police in the city of Siedlets, Tikhanovich, engineered on August 27-28 to 28, a bloody military pogrom in the city, netting 30 deaths and more than 150 wounded Jews. The signal for the pogrom were shots fired at the sentry by an agent provocateur, whereupon the troops started an aimless musketry fire on the streets and even bombarded Jewish houses with grenades. Many soldiers, in a state of intoxication, committed incredible barbarities and looted Jewish property. Notwithstanding the official report of another agent of the local political police, Captain Pietukov, in which he asserted that the Jews had not given the slightest reason for the butchery and that the latter had been entirely engineered by the military and political authorities, the perpetrator of the pogrom, Tikhanovich was not only allowed to go unpunished, but received from the Governor-General of Warsaw an expression of thanks for his energy and executive skill. This being the attitude of the ruling spheres of Russia, it was out of the question to expect any initiative from that quarter in regard to the solution of the Jewish question. The government of Stolypin, in a circular issued on August 24, 1906, had promised to find out without delay which restrictions, being a source of irritation and manifestly obsolete, could be immediately repealed, and which others, affecting basically the relationship of the Jewish nationality to the native population, seemed to be a matter of popular conscience and should therefore be referred to the legislative institutions. The Council of Ministers laid before the Tsar a draft of moderate reforms in favor of the Jews, pointing to the necessity of appeasing the Jews, who, as a result of their grievous restrictions, had been forced to carry on a desperate struggle against the existing order. But these representations had no effect. Nicholas II is reported to have said on that occasion, So long as I am Tsar, the Zis of Russia shall not have equal rights. During that time, the power of the so-called second government, the horrible Kamarilla around the Tsar, was in the ascendancy, and their mainstay were the Black Hundred, now organized in the reactionary League of the Russian People. These reactionary terrorists knew only of one way to solve the Jewish question, by exterminating the Jews. There was only one ray of hope left, 
the second Duma, which was to be convoked in February 1907. The election campaign was carried on under government pressure and was hampered by the threat of reprisals and pogroms on the part of the black. The elections resulted in a Duma with an anomalous complexion. The two extreme wings, the Socialists and Black Hundred, had gained in strength, whereas the Constitutional Democratic Center had been weakened. The Jews had managed to elect only three deputies, apart from one Jewish Social Democrat who ran on the ticket of his party. They were men of little renown, whereas of the deputies of the First Duma who were prosecuted for signing the Vivog Manifesto, not one was elected. The entire energy of the new parliament spent itself in the struggle between its left and right wing. The Jewish question was entirely relegated to the Committee on the Freedom of Conscience. The government had brought in a bill repealing all denominational restrictions except those affecting the Jews, but the committee decided to eliminate this discriminating clause and in this manner carried through the emancipation of the Jews under the guise of the freedom of conscience. But this time too, the hope for Jewish emancipation proved an illusion. The Duma was soon dissolved under the pretext that a revolutionary conspiracy of the socialistic deputies had been uncovered. On June 3, 1907, another coup d'etat took place. The former electoral law, which made it possible for the Russian democracy and the oppressed nationalities to send their representatives to the Duma, was arbitrarily changed by the Tsar in order to ensure a conservative pro-government majority in the Russian parliament. There followed an era of dismal reaction. End of section 13